Good morning. Happy Independence Day. I mean, the kind of independence that we talked about on the video, right? Yeah. That kind. Uh, well, welcome to Grace Fellowship Church in Prosper, Washington. Hopefully that doesn't come as news to any of you that you're in Prosper, Washington this morning. Uh, how about Children's Church? Shall we do that today? All those in favor? Say aye. All right, you can go. So here it is. We are here. This much-anticipated and long-dreaded, bittersweet moment of wrapping up our study of the book of Ephesians. I did a little math. It took me the better part of the week. Um, but I figured out that in, it's taken us almost four months to cover this book. Uh, and it's only six chapters. We've devoted 16 sermons, including today's, to the book of Ephesians, and a, a rough approximation is 77,000 words have been spoken by either Al or I about this particular book, which translates to about 120 puns and or bad jokes. <laughs> and we're not even trying. <laughs> And I honestly kind of hate to see this study come to an end over the course of this time. Ephesians has become one of my favorite books. There's so much here, uh, so much to learn. Amazing that this was written so long ago, and it still feels like it was written to any church in any town in America today. It, it is phenomenal. Uh, and it started out, you know what, I better pray before I get into this, because I might mess things up. I'm surprised that the rest of you aren't reacting like that uh, this morning, but... Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful to be here on this day of independence, Lord, and, and may it serve to remind us that in spite of all of the um, wacky, weird, and wild things happening in our country today, this is still the best place for us to live, we believe. Um, we are free to worship, we are free to believe as we choose for the most part, um, and we are thankful for those freedoms, but, but mostly we're, we're thankful for our freedom in Christ, for the identity that we share, for the, the new life that is available to us as recipients of your grace, as believers in Jesus Christ, who rose from the dead to, to save our sins and to offer us this opportunity for freedom. We're grateful for the chance to be here. We're thankful for this letter that, that Paul was inspired to write to the church in Ephesus and how it applies to us today. Lord, may we hear these, these final nuggets for us as we finish up the book today. We find application for our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So the book started off uh, a long time ago with Paul laying out in the first couple of chapters this, this theologically deep and yet surprisingly approachable overview of the gospel. He talked about how blessed we are to have been offered salvation, to be offered forgiveness of sins. And, and Paul made it abundantly clear that our salvation comes about as a result of God's grace alone. It's enacted, it's, it's activated by our faith, but it's provided by God's grace alone, and it's made possible through the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. He was sacrificed in our stead. And this salvation, he says, is made available to everyone, Jew or Gentile, which pretty much covered everybody at that time. Circumcised or uncircumcised, it doesn't matter, male or female, regardless of your ethnicity or race or country of origin or your hair color or how messed up you think you are, this salvation is available to everybody. So after our sins have been forgiven... After we've been justified, which is just made or declared righteous before God, even though we're not, 
we've been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the, the Holy Spirit helps us in this process of moving towards holiness. The gospel changes us. The Spirit helps us in our journey towards sanctification. We become increasingly more Christ-like. That's the goal. So we transition from what has been the influence and power of the world and the devil, which is the system he kind of oversees. We commit our allegiance and our worship to the risen Christ. And it turns out that does not go unnoticed by the devil and the world. This life-changing process of having been given the gospel of Christ, causes us to become maybe just a slightly bigger blip on the devil's radar. Now, we have officially switched teams from Team Devil to Team Jesus, but the enemy of God, and therefore the enemy of those who follow Jesus, the devil doesn't just gladly let us go. He doesn't just give up on us because we've changed teams. Living for Christ means we're going to face temptation and trial and sometimes all-out assault and attack. Which is why Paul ends this letter to the Ephesians the way that he does. He wanted them to know, and, and consequently he wants us to know, he wants the church to be prepared for the spiritual warfare that is surely going to come our way. And, and, and I kind of wonder if, if the spiritual attack was even more pronounced at times in Ephesus, as Paul was writing this letter. I mean, it was the home of the temple of the god Artemis, It was a city widely known for their practice of magic and the occult. I mean, a lot of people were were either committed to the practice of magic, or they had businesses built around, uh, economies in support of the practice. I mean, I think Ephesus was probably a fairly dark place. In the book of Acts, we're told about a riot that occurred um, when the locals felt like Paul was potentially causing harm to their occult rituals and to their economy just by preaching Jesus. He said, this, this God that you have this temple for, that's a false God. But here's Jesus. He's the real thing. He got people stirred up. Ephesus was protective of their cultic economy and their culture built on idol worship. And a riot ensued, and people were out to get Paul for upsetting their evil apple cart. But he got away. Legend has it that John the Apostle was pastor of, a ch- of the church in Ephesus, and he was eventually arrested for preaching Jesus. He was placed in a pot of boiling oil and miraculously was unhurt. The legend further states that he was exiled then to the island of Patmos, where he received this unusual vision that led to the book of Revelation. They say he was eventually released and he died of old age in Ephesus. Other versions say that at some point in his ministry, he was just taken up like Elijah or Enoch. But either way, I think the picture is pretty clear that Ephesus could be uh, spiritually a pretty tough nut to crack. So after encouraging the church in Ephesus to follow Jesus, to live for Jesus, Paul closes out this letter with one last pretty important piece of advice. He said, you need to be prepared for spiritual fallout. You need to be prepared for what's going to come your way. And he starts in chapter 6, verse 10 through 13. Finally, he says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against the flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, 
Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. <clears throat> now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this part uh, of the text because we kind of covered a lot of this ground back in our, uh, the series on spiritual warfare that I did in February. So you can go back and listen to that again if you'd like. Um, but just in summation, as Christians, we, we, we really face three enemies. It's the world, the flesh, and the devil. By aligning ourselves with God, by, by becoming followers of Christ, we, we have committed to putting away the old self, that's the flesh, and we're, we're trying now to limit the influence of the world, which is under the spell, the control of the devil. So as we put off the old, we're putting on the new self, which is Jesus and the Holy Spirit. They become our primary influences. They should become our primary influences in our life. But this new self seems like, as we take off Team Devil and put off Team Jersey, sometimes it feels like Team Jersey has got a lovely target emblazoned on the back of the jersey. It feels like we come under more attack and assault. And, and part of it, I think, is true. I think the devil hates to lose. And if he loses us to Jesus, he's going to make us feel it. He's going make to make it painful. We know he prowls around like a lion. We know he looks for ways to steal, kill, and destroy, especially those who commit to follow Christ. However, as it turns out, with the power of the Lord and the strength of his might, with the help of the Holy Spirit, we can stand against the devil in any of his schemes. Now, the devil is not equal with God in any way, but he is a very formidable opponent for us. He watches us. He knows our habits. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our human faults and failures. I think he has files on each one of us. So his schemes against us, I think, are both personal and targeted. He knows when we suffer bouts of depression. He knows when we deal with anxiety. He knows if we have addiction issues. He knows if we struggle with sexual temptation or pride or anger or whatever it is. He knows how to get to each one of us. And he's going to attack when we're weak and vulnerable. So we are to be aware of the fact that this is a spiritual battle that we're facing. We lose sight of that sometimes. When our, when our families mock our faith, when our neighbors shake their head at how odd we are for leaving our driveway every Sunday morning to go to church. What a bunch of weirdos in our neighborhood. Uh, when, when our coworkers make fun of us behind our back. When our own government may persecute us at some point for our faith, Ultimately, those people are not the problem. They're, they're, they're not the enemy. They're pawns on the spiritual chessboard. Our real fight is against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness. It's the devil and his demons. Those are our enemies. And since we are engaged in a spiritual battle, that makes us Christian soldiers, we're lined up on the side of King Jesus, facing the opponent across from us. We're, we're facing an opponent that represents the spiritual forces of evil. And we are wholly unprepared to fight this battle alone. But with the strength of the Lord, with the power of his might, utilizing the full armor of God, we can stand firm. In fact, we're called to stand firm. Notice, we are not called to vanquish the enemy. We're never called to cast out the devil, bind him, send him back to hell. 
We're not called to conquer. We're just told, don't lose ground. Stand firm. So the weapons of our warfare, as Paul goes on to lay out here, the weapons of our warfare are really primarily defensive in nature. He starts in verse 14. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So having tried to prepare the church for spiritual temptation in in terms of battle or warfare, it's not surprising really that Paul uses the imagery of a soldier in his instructions for our preparedness. I mean, it's even less surprising when we remember that Paul uses this analogy of a soldier because he's under house arrest as he writes this. So he's looking at soldiers every day. There are probably periods of the day where he's chained to one. He can't get away from them. So he's inspired by the Spirit as he's right this, but he's also inspired by his immediate surroundings. And Paul gives us this remarkable analogy for spiritual battle readiness. And he starts with the belt of truth. Now this perhaps seems odd to us, to start with a belt of truth. I mean, we tend to minimize belts. By and large, we don't care that much about belts. Our interest in belts encompasses two things. Will it hold up my pants? Does it go with my outfit? Does it match my white patent leather shoes? You know who you are. (laughs) So we don't really care that much about belts, but it was a very consequential item for a Roman soldier. It could be functional. It was functional. It it almost always supported the the short dagger that they would wear on their belt uh, in in case they got into a hand-to-hand, close-up kind of combat. If a soldier had to run, they tended to... Not to want to do that, but if a soldier had to run, they would pull up the front of their tunic and tuck it into their belt. It gave them better, freer leg movement as they they had to move. So it was functional. But the belt was highly decorative also. In fact, it it identified the wearer as a Roman centurion. Only Roman soldiers could wear this particular kind of belt. So people saw this belt and they knew this was a Roman soldier they were looking at. And they could personalize them. So no two belts were alike. The same basic form, but then they could add things. You see the little dangly things here. Those are all things that the soldiers were free to add, but they didn't all have to add the same thing. But just wearing the belt meant something. It meant something to the soldier. It meant something to the, to the citizenry that could easily identify this person as a soldier. And soldiers rarely wore all of their equipment except in battle, but they always, always wore their belt. It was essential for a soldier. Likewise, Paul says, our spiritual defense should probably begin with the belt of truth. We need to be familiar with God's truth. Jesus said he was the way, the truth, and the life. So the more we know about Jesus, the more we know about God's word, the better we are able to identify untruth. And in a culture like Ephesus and like ours, that is steeped in moral relativism and subjective feelings, if we stand for truth, 
we're going to stand out from the crowd just a little bit. Like the belt for the soldier, a stand for truth will identify us in a way that's different from the rest of the culture. We'll be recognizable for our stance for truth, much like a soldier with his belt. And we also know that the devil is a liar. We need to be able to spot his lies quickly. So based in part in our knowledge of God's truth, I mean, that's kind of the bare minimum here, the starting point for standing firm is knowing truth, having a belt of truth. Paul next refers to the breastplate of righteousness, and this kind of goes right to the heart, no pun intended, but the heart of our orthopraxy, our right living. Paul has spent two and a half chapters now laying out how we ought to live rightly based on our right beliefs. And now he says your, your, your right living, your righteousness, this actually provides a valuable and necessary defense against the devil's schemes. That's not just good stuff that you do. It's not just good practices develop. It's helpful for your spiritual well-being. I mean, Satan's a liar, we know, but he's also an accuser. He likes to remind us of our moral failings. He likes to remind us when we've messed things up, and then he likes to make us feel really bad about it. You don't deserve God's love. Jesus doesn't love you anymore. You've just messed up too much. There's no way he can love you. But if we spend time actively trying to love our neighbor, trying to actively bear with one another, trying to love our wives, trying to respect our husbands, if we're not getting drunk, if we're not angering our kids, all all these things that, that Paul has laid out, if we're trying to live righteously, then the devil has less to accuse us of. He can't play on our guilt. He can't try to blackmail us or make us feel bad. He can't tell us we ought to just give up because we can't be perfect anyway. I mean, that's true, but it doesn't mean we can't keep trying. So the more Christ-like we try to be, the better prepared, it turns out, the better prepared we are to fend off the schemes of the devil. So our right living, our desire, our attempt to be more Christ-like is a powerful defensive weapon against the devil. Well, the next piece of equipment that Paul mentions is shoes for our feet. This is another probably overlooked piece of equipment, not unlike the belt. We kind of take shoes for granted. I mean, if you think about last week when the asphalt hit something like the surface of the sun kind of temperatures, And we walked around and hardly noticed our feet didn't feel it because we had the safety, the comfort of shoes. But in the far-flung Roman Empire, they covered vast territories and all kinds of terrain. In a lot of places, shoes were just optional for people, but not for a soldier. Shoes were an absolute necessity. They had to deal with all kinds of environments. They dealt with heat and, and dirt and rocks and forests and wild animals and And good shoes allowed them solid footing regardless of the terrain. No matter where they were, they had solid footing. In fact, it it would have been common to see soldiers walking around without shield and sword, but a good soldier always had his belt and his shoes. That was, at least, that was the minimal preparation for a soldier, belt and shoes. And here, Paul equates shoes with the gospel of peace. So in order for us to have solid footing, 
regardless of the terrain, regardless of our circumstances. In order for us to be able to stand firm, we need to have shoes for our feet. We need to have the readiness that comes from knowing the gospel of peace. We need to be at peace with God. We need to be at peace with his word. We need to experience the peace that comes from our acceptance of the gospel if we are to withstand the attacks of the devil. Now, having shoes allowed the Roman soldiers to cover and conquer vast territories, and they were, they were on a pretty good spree there for a while. Part of it was because they had shoes. They were able to cover long distances. They were able to cover vast territories. So the, the, the metaphoric shoes of the gospel of peace also allows us to be a little mobile. It allows us to go and share the good news. It equips us to be prepared to go and share the gospel with other people in any environment, in any circumstance. And we're always prepared to withstand an attack. They're primarily defensive, but there is a little offensive component there to the shoe as well. It equips us to go. Next, Paul says that in all circumstances, we are to take up the shield of faith. Now, this, I think, is kind of the, the, the iconic idea of the defensive nature of our weaponry. The Roman shield was approximately four feet tall by two feet wide. It was big. It was made of wood, and in most cases it was covered with a toughened, hard leather exterior. So as the soldier held it out in front, it stopped swords and and lances and arrows, and flaming arrows were a common part of warfare at that time. So a good shield would stop all of those offensive attacks. But those shields were also designed, and they were constructed in such a way, so that they could interlock So soldiers could stand next to each other and provide this kind of impenetrable barrier almost, and they also overlapped top to bottom. And this provided better protection, great protection, for multiple soldiers all at the same time. Which makes me think that Paul was maybe giving a little nod here to the additional safety and security provided by the shared faith of a believing church community. We are stronger when we are together. We are stronger when we're standing firm together. There are a lot of lone ranger Christians out there in the world that don't think they need anybody else. It's just me and Jesus. We got our own thing going. That's a lyric, right? Me and Jesus, we got it all figured out or something like that. And that's all they need. Maybe, for a little bit, we're better, we're safer, we're stronger when we're in a community of faith. And if you think about it, if, you, if, you have, if you're a lone ranger Christian out there trying to live life on your own, and you may have the best shield in the world, you're still vulnerable on three sides. And the faith that Paul refers to here, the shield of faith, it's not saving faith, He's assuming that because he's writing to Christians in a church. He's assuming most of them are already on board with acceptance of the gospel. So he's talking about that faith that is just part of our daily living. It's, it's trusting in the promises of God. Walking by faith, not by sight. It's casting our cares on him because we know he cares for us. It's, it's about not being anxious about anything. Not worrying about tomorrow knowing that all things work together for good to him who loves the Lord. 
even when it doesn't look like it. That's the faith that protects us. Knowing that God is bigger than we are and we can turn it over to him. That's the faith that protects. So when the enemy attacks, usually it's when we're at a weak point or a weak moment or a weak month, year, whatever, whatever it may be. When we're, we're having this period of weakness, the devil attacks and we're struggling. And, and, and like everything else, we kind of have this spiritual fight or flight response that kicks in. You know, where, where we have to decide, are we just going to give in to the temptation? Are we just going to give in to the depression? Are we just going to give in to what, whatever it is? Or are we going to fight back? And when that attack is met by this kind of faith, we know that we don't have to give in. We have the power to stand firm. With the various armor pieces at our disposal, yielding to temptation is not an option. Well... It was for a minute there, but now we know we can stand firm and we can fight it off. And the fiery darts of the devil will not penetrate our shield of faith if we stand firm. Well, next up in our battle dress is the helmet of salvation. And again, this is a strictly defensive tool. I mean, unless you're up close and personal, you're hand-to-hand combat, and you've got to headbutt somebody... The helmet really is designed to protect you, to protect your noggin, to keep your head safe, keep your mind safe. It's an important piece of equipment in actual battle and in spiritual battle because it protects our mind. From the beginning, the enemy of God and the enemy of Jesus' followers has sought to attack the mind, to confuse us, to lead us away from truth. In Genesis 3, very early in this whole book, Genesis 3, that says the serpent was crafty and cunning. He twisted God's words around. He sought to tempt Eve into sin. It's written about even in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians, but I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive. That's a popular attack from the enemy. And we've been told throughout this whole book that our actions are based on our beliefs. So if he can rattle our beliefs, then that's going to affect our actions. There's another warning we see in Colossians. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So again, here's this link here between the attacks of the devil and this man-made philosophy, this, this wisdom that comes from someplace other than God. We are susceptible to it. So it seems clear that the mind is one of the key battlefields on spiritual warfare. Once we've come to faith in Christ, once we've committed our lives to Christ, based on not just a feeling that we have, not a, a, a physical sensation of some kind, but based on a studying God's word, based on the idea of a knowable God, a sufficient evidence, sound reason, our minds become a popular target for our spiritual enemy. And it's just as simple as, did God really say that? I mean, you suppose that's what he really meant. Did God really mean you can't do this, you should do that? And it's just this ever-slight drift away from truth. 
that is encouraged. Or if you pay attention to any culture stuff, you know, maybe you've seen lately, you know, well, your, your, your favorite Christian writer, they've changed their mind about what sexual sin really is. Maybe I should reconsider what I believe. Or that four-time Dove-winning singer-songwriter guy that I like so much, they're deconstructing their faith. Maybe I should reconsider what the Bible says. It can be subtle. It can be subtle. It can be dangerous in trying to move us away from truth. So we need to continually steal up. We need to continually shore up our minds, keep grounded in, in, in truth, cling to the gospel, allow the gospel and the will of God to transform our minds, not the world. Romans 12 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. It's, 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 it's a process of mind, right thinking. And that's an area of attack. And, and we need to realize that this, this work of renewal has, has already started for those who have received salvation. As followers of Christ, the Holy Spirit's already at work in us. It, he helps us put off the old self and, and our old ways of thinking and helps us put on the new self with our new, more Christ-like way of thinking. But this is not an entirely passive process either. You know that old adage, garbage in, garbage out? We are responsible for working out our own salvation in fear and trembling. We're responsible to limit the garbage in while increasing the good stuff that's coming in. Or, as Paul wrote in this book of Ephesians, walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. That's, that's our job. The Holy Spirit's at work, but we are required to be part of this process also. And, and what's the best way for us to discern the will of the Lord? To know as much as we can about the Lord? To, to read and, and know what he has revealed to us? To know God better is to understand his will better, and much of his will is revealed for us in his word. That's how we understand it better, which is why that's next on Paul's list. The sword of the Spirit. This is one of those cases of last but not least on this list. I mean, this is the last thing mentioned officially in Paul's list of God's armor, but it's probably the most consequential piece because it's foundational for all of the others. How do we know truth? From his word. How do we attain righteousness? By studying his word and trying to live it out. How do we find peace? Well, it's in here. How do we grow in faith? Stay tuned in here. How do we renew our mind? I mean, it's, it's all in here. Everything we're, we're asked to do we can, can be found in here. The Word of God is the basis for this full armor. And here's the really interesting part about this weapon being mentioned last. It is equally valuable, valuable for both offense and defense. The Word of God he describes as a sword. It can help us fight off attacks. You know, we've seen all those pirate movies. It's a combination of offense and defense, and it helps us fight off attacks, but it can also respond to attacks. I mean, the, the best example probably is when, when Jesus was in the desert being tempted. Did he actively and aggressively call out to bind Satan? No. Did he command Satan to leave? 
No, he, he fought him off. He countered Satan's attack by swinging a big sword. He quoted scripture. And it worked. Every time. Knowing God's word and having wisdom to understand and apply it, it's our best and, and really our only defense against our powerful and cunning enemy. Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light for my path. It leads us. It directs us. It instructs us. It corrects us. It girds us up for spiritual battle. Which begs the question, can we really know it? I mean, it's kind of heavy in places. It's kind of it's dense. It's, it's deep. Can we, can we really know it and understand it? I mean, how do we get the discernment that we need to know when and how to apply God's word? How can we ensure that, that we're going to understand what we need to know, when we need to know it? And the next thing on Paul's list kind of explains that. Now, when I said that the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, is the last piece of the full armor of God, I say that because when we think about armor, we think about this stuff. But really, Paul lists one more thing that ought to be included in the list of the armory, and that's found in verses 18 to 20. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me, and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So Paul has cleverly used the metaphor of a soldier in describing our Christian life. We're engaged in a spiritual battle. We should be prepared for battle all the time in full attire. And the metaphor ends when Paul gets to prayer. He, just, he doesn't make any correlation here between prayer and any kind of weaponry. And I'm, I'm, this is just a, a guess on my part. I don't really know. But I, I wonder if Paul, ha- having been inspired by the Spirit, by his immediate surroundings, he's got these soldiers nearby. He, he, he was given this wonderful armor of God metaphor, how the redeemed are to live, how we're to fight off the world, the flesh, and the devil. But when he gets to prayer, the armor metaphor just kind of ran dry. Prayer is an altogether different kind of thing. It's entirely supernatural. There's no earthly equivalent, perhaps. It's the communication of the human soul with the creator of that soul. Prayer is described throughout Scripture in various ways. Uh, Seeking God's favor, pouring out one's soul, crying out to heaven, drawing near to God, kneeling before the Father. I have no idea what the military equivalent of that would be. It doesn't neatly fit into the armor metaphor, and yet Paul saves this for the last thing on his list. It's almost like, and after you try all these other things, you've got prayer. Here's your big gun. Here's your secret weapon. Perhaps this is the one we are to rely on most. And he says, praying, ongoing, persistent, continuous act of prayer. Praying in the Spirit. Remember Paul wrote in in Romans 8 that even when we don't know what to pray, the Spirit intercedes for us. Helps us in our weakness. So we are to pray with all prayer and supplication. And, and, and I think Paul mentions this here because there are, there are different kinds of prayer. You know, when, when we pray, there are prayers of thanksgiving, there are prayers of intercession, there are prayers of supplication. We're, we're, we're asking for things. It's a very humble, penitent kind of prayer. 
And we're to incorporate all of these kinds of prayer in our continual praying. And that helps keep us alert. It helps our minds stay, stay sharp and focused. It helps us in our connection with the Spirit. It helps us in our soul connection with our Commander-in-Chief. It helps us stay alert to the schemes of the devil. It helps us persevere through the trials and attacks. It's hard to argue that this is not one of the more significant pieces of armor on this list. We don't always act like that. We don't always treat it that way. But it's one of the more significant pieces of armor on the list. And I think Paul knows this better than probably most. You know, he asks for prayer here for himself. I mean, first he asks for prayer on behalf of all the saints. He instructs the church, pray for all believers, pray pray for all the saints everywhere, pray for all the churches. But then, and this really kind of struck me as I was going through that, it's almost kind of hard to believe, Paul asks for prayer for himself. And not just in a general safe travel, you know, our mysterious hedge of protection. He's not asking for that kind of prayer for himself. He asks for boldness. This is the Apostle Paul who wrote an entire letter to a church about circumcision. He's asking for boldness. He says it twice. Pray for boldness for me. And I think this, again, this struck me, it gives us just maybe a glimpse into Paul's life. We think of him now as a bold, if not the boldest, proclaimer of truth. And as a result of that boldness, he was beaten repeatedly. He was shipwrecked. He was assaulted. He was stoned. And and as he's writing this, he's under house arrest, chained to a soldier. And he asked for prayer, for continued boldness, to continue to proclaim the gospel. And and I, I, I think this is an example of Paul's spirit being willing, but sometimes the flesh You know, perhaps once in a while his flesh just said, how about a little sabbatical? Can we take a time out here for a while? Let's let's just take a break. Let's, Let's heal up from that last bout of boldness. Can we? Must we always be so bold? I mean, that would be the entirely human response, right? But Paul says, pray for boldness for me. Don't don't let me give up. Don't let me slow down. Help me continue to proclaim the gospel, to which I am an ambassador in chains. I mean, literally, an ambassador in chains. Help me be bold. So in in the context of this letter, Paul asked for prayer for, for boldness, and we get the impression that when Paul has given instructions for how to be strong in the Lord, when he's when he's urged the church to put on the full armor of God so that they could stand strong. He had first-hand experience in this. What Paul wrote was inspired. It was practical, first-hand knowledge he was giving out to the church here. Paul knew how to persevere. He knew how to stand firm and not shrink back, but he still needed the protection of that assemblage of shields to help him. So even as Paul's writing this, you know, he's locked up, he's under arrest, he's got guards around all the time. But this, this last little bit of encouragement and training for, for the Christians in Ephesus, as usual in his letters, Paul ends this letter with a couple of personal comments. He says, So that you also may know how I am and what I'm doing 
Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ, with love incorruptible. Now, Paul no doubt knew many of the Ephesian Christians. He'd spent a couple years there earlier. He knew as he wrote this, uh, they would know about him being in prison probably. They'd be concerned about his welfare. But his message to them, all of the other verses that came before this, that was more important than Paul's update on his own personal welfare. But he sent along Tychicus, his helper, described as a beloved brother, faithful minister. And we know this because Tychicus was just a dumb name. He is mentioned in four other places as a companion and a co-laborer with Paul. So it's probably Tychicus who's hand-delivered this letter to the Ephesians. So he's like the, the precursor to a missionary newsletter. He brings them Paul's letter, and then he gives them an update on how Paul is doing. And that's going to be an encouragement for them. But Paul closes out with encouraging them to be at peace with all the brothers, to love the brothers with faith, to love with the kind of love that they have received from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know love has been a significant theme of this book. He started out by reminding them of the, the love of Christ through this clear gospel presentation. God so loved the world. And then he laid out for us how this love ought to work itself out through us. If we have the love of Christ, then it works itself out in our other relationships. Our relationships within the church. Our relationships with the culture. The relationship we have even in our homes with husbands and wives and and, and kids. And Paul makes here one last appeal to a a love-based unity among the saints. And knowing, I think, that this is all. Everything Paul has written is oftentimes much harder than to do than it is to say. Paul extends grace in his closing words. Grace be with you all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. And what struck me about this is Paul ends this letter pretty much the way he started it. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus with love incorruptible. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. In this letter he writes to the church, knowing it's going to be hard to hear, knowing it's going to be hard to do, knowing it's going to be hard to live up to, Paul starts with grace and he ends with grace. The gospel of Jesus Christ is life-changing. It is offered to us by grace. It is a gift that we don't deserve. And it calls us to live up. It calls us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. It calls us to try to be Christ-like. And the Spirit of God is given to us to help in that process. And divine grace is always available even when we fall short. So may we continue to grow in our efforts to walk worthy. May we continue to love our brothers and wives and husbands and kids as Christ loves us. May we get better at extending grace when others fail even when they fail us. May we be able to stand firm in the face of adversity so when the world sees us, the love and the peace of Christ that comes from Christ is shown through us.
What a letter. Father God, we're grateful for the chance to spend time in your word, Lord. It, it, it is uh, amazing, the, the rich, richness, the depth, the supernatural understanding of the human condition. Lord, it is both convicting in how we personally are uh, not always living the way that we should, but it's also encouraging to see we're not the only ones. And yet you love us in spite of us. It matters not what we have done. It matters not how we have lived and, and the number of sins we think we have committed. And Lord, you're not keeping track. Sin is sin. But you are willing to forgive our sin. Every single one. If we commit ourselves to you. If we believe that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, who lived and died and was resurrected for us, who died in our place. Lord, the blood, of, the blood of Christ, the shed blood of Christ can redeem us, can forgive us, can wash over our sins, and can bring us into harmony with God our Father. And then we can be called to live a life that is joyful, a life that is victorious. We're not going to win every battle in this spiritual warfare, Lord, but we can win a lot of them. We can increasingly win more of them. We can become more dependent, more reliant on the Holy Spirit to help us. Lord, we can become more Christ-like. In that moment, we're going to see you. We're going to know that it's all been worthwhile. Whatever attack may come, whatever adversity may come our way, it's going to be as nothing compared to standing in your glory and worshiping you for eternity. We thank you for your love for us, the freedom that we have in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.